Bonin Cast, Product Innovation and UX Design with Bonanza Design. Welcome back, everyone. It's LeanCast, a podcast that is about product innovation and UX design. I am beyond thrilled to have Henry Layton on the podcast. He's celebrating a book that he recently published on the topic of product strategy. He has written two books. The, the, the newest one is called Product Strategy is Simple. The first one is called Product Leaderships. Starts with you. Really exciting guy. I bump into him on LinkedIn. He has tons of experience. He is the founder of Prod MBA. He's the lead mentor. He lead and mentor a lot of product folks. So check out his website. First and foremost, has an amazing website over there. So in case you're interested to learn more about him and what he offers to you. Henry, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Congratulations on the book. How are you doing? Yeah, great. No, great to be here. Uh, yeah, really excited to talk uh, in everything entrepreneurship, product, even UX as well. Henry, you have an amazing background. And you have an interesting journey that you took and that got you here to where you are. So I would like to start from there. How did you get into the product? Yeah, great question. And I think it's, you know, you, you always need the context to try and understand, you know, what, what's the thread or what was the sort of, you know, why does someone think certain things? You know, why do I have opinions on product strategy that might be unconventional? So I started, uh, I stumbled into products. Um, I was traveling down the, the, the Brazilian Amazon by myself back in 2010, 11. Um, I spent a lot of time by myself, so I had a lot of time, no internet back then, uh, just learning a bit of Portuguese grammar and just floating along, along the river and came up with an idea for a backpacking app. So I was backpacking at the time, obviously thinking a lot about that topic. And um, yeah, I had this idea that we could improve it by sort of connecting people and maybe like mapping out your journey along the way as well. So finished that trip, um, went back to final year at university and, you know, I studied political science and Spanish. So it's like absolutely nothing related to business. No idea about any of this stuff. Um, wouldn't know what the word product really meant. Um, so went back to final year of university and, and, and decided to sort of start a business around this idea. You know, I felt there was some demand there. I felt that, that, that this was something I was excited by much more than what I was studying at the time, which felt like a, a bit of a, a waste of time. Um, so first year of business, uh, put a team together, we got a little bit of investment and proceeded to make like every single mistake possible. I mean, every mistake under the sun, uh, you know, things like decisions driven by ego, by me as the leader, you know, thinking, well, I've got this amazing idea, like everyone's going to love it. It's going to be the best thing ever. Um, not validating, like no process. We had some developers that really had no idea, like, to work with them um, beyond sort of vaguely motivating them with the, the vision. So luckily in the second year, we, we did get a product out. And we, we, got, um, we got a huge boost. We got featured on the App Store. Again, you know, Ego got in the way and we sort of thought that this is going to be huge. Uh, and fortunately, we got into an accelerator off the back of that. So we were based in London at that point, having moved from University of Bristol and, um, you know, uh, started to really level up. Yeah, we had really strong mentorship. We were reading all the right books. You know, Lean Startup was by my my bedside as my my Bible. 
at that stage. And um, yeah, started to make better decisions. That's partly through mentorship, guidance with the accelerator, and, and, and you know, really going all in on this uh, as a business rather than sort of dabbling on the side of, of university. Um, so I started to get some traction, started to sort of build properly. You know, I was, I was filling, fulfilling the product role. So I stepped down from, from CEO, five people at that time, went full into the product role, realized that was, you know, really what I was most passionate about. And, um, yeah, had a, had a good process, starting to work well with developers, fulfilling the UX role effectively, doing things like, you know, we go down to a hostel every week, test out a new prototype with five random people there, iterate. So it's starting to be quite lean, in fact. The end of second year, however, we, we just ran out of money. We made too many mistakes, too many, too much technical debt, had a complete lack of, you know, strategy and, 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 and substance on the product side that, that really caught up with us. So when we decided to close that business, you know, I was left, uh, lacking purpose, you know, feeling a bit depressed after that, that whole experience of having learned a lot, but really, um, you know, saying, well, like, what do I do now? <laughs> and fortunately, you know, I discovered this thing called product and, and, and UX and, and loved that sort of the playoff between these two things and also um, business. And, um, you know, asked myself, well, why, why did we fail? And why do other products fail and other, other products succeed? So, you know, since then, uh, well, over the last eight to 10 years, um, the driving question for me is, is, you know, what makes products succeed? What makes others fail? And also what makes effective product leaders versus um, ineffective product leaders? And, and that's really led me to, to, you know, where I am today, um, uh, running Product Beer, where we coach um, product managers and help them really fast track their, their path towards product leadership roles. Wow, fantastic. That's, that's what you, that's such a inspiring story and and i really appreciate something that you said in the earlier that you quit the ceo role mm. to actually do product and ux and it's something that caught my interest because as an entrepreneur that want to found a startup the ceo role is the sort of like seemingly the ultimate role you want to aim mm -hmm. at but letting go of that role and sort of like to focus on the product and UX is inspiring for me. Yeah, it was probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made because firstly, the way that we, so it's a five person company at that time. We had a few freelancers, right. so sort of nine, but really five people doing it full time. And, um, you know, so you say CEO, but but really that was just so that you know we needed to, to pitch to investors who was ultimately making the key decisions. And um yeah, you know, I was the original founder, right? So so it was, you know, my baby, my thing. And it was I think just one day I realized like I'm getting in the way of my own company. I'm trying to do all this, the you know, raising investment, um, thinking about how we turn this into a business whilst also trying to understand and learn product. And I think one day I just had a realization that I'm getting in the way. I'm actually preventing this company progressing and had to really, you know, step back. I talk about, you know, this a lot in, in my first book, Product Leadership Starts With You. One of the three pillars that I think is essential for product leadership is being mindful. Um, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. some people think that's a fluffy term, right? We talk about meditation, mindfulness, etc. Uh, but the ability to zoom out specifically and look at your circumstances in a detached way uh, is incredibly mm -hmm. important, right? Not being blinded by things like ego, 
simply not you know so you get excited about an idea being able to just step back and assess it objectively as well so you know one day i just had that realization i'm getting in my way i'm getting in the way of the company and, and you know what? i just prefer products what i like to do it's what i you know get excited about when i get up in the morning so i had a conversation with uh geordie who did our, our partnerships at the time and he you know he was a perfect fit for it as soon as i thought of the idea I was like, oh it makes complete sense <laughs> But I think, you know, my ego getting in the way, also lack of experience, right? Not really knowing, like, what are these roles? Like, how, what's the interplay between product and, 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 and the CEO, for example? Um, but yeah, you know, I'd really, I talk about this a lot when coaching people. We have to anchor around, um, you know, not only, not only should we put the interest of the business first, but particularly with a startup, you know, particularly if it's a very small company. You know, if the startup doesn't mm-hmm. su- survive, then, you know, you can have all these little infights and sort of, you know, frustrations with each other, but none of it matters if the company fails. Um, and, you know, the second thing is, is doing what you're actually, I, I, I don't like using the word passion, but doing what really interests you and gets you up in the morning. So for me, you know, that, as I said, that that's been product. And I think that's true of anyone, you know, you could be, they are the you know really good UX designer in a company, but if you're not buying into the mission of the company, or if actually you know you prefer really focus on UI rather than UX research, then you're never going to do your best work possible, and you're not going to deliver you know maximum value to to your company, um, and that catches up with you over time, right? It really limits your your potential. Um, so yeah, I was lucky to have that realization quite early on in my career, which is also something I've kept with me throughout. You know, whether that was as a consultant, uh, working companies and, and also now running my own business, being very deliberate about what kind of business I want that to be, um, you know, really living by the principles that, 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 I, uh, that I started it. Um, you know, why did I start the business, for example? It's because of these certain principles. So a lot of questions out of this, but one thing that really st- stuck with me and i would like to drill down on it a bit more you said something beautiful about looking at yourself zoom out look at yourself mm-hmm. in a detached way objectively how could product folks go about this because it's very difficult and like the problems the environment that we are facing is always evolving it's complex it's evasive certain we we have to read out a lot of false positive and false negative ego gets in the way mm-hmm. i'm asking for myself how can i keep myself in check yeah great question so i'll talk about the the principle that we i live by and also we we sort of coach people in and then a specific i think the the highest impact lowest effort uh, tactic that you can apply so you know broadly it's about so first thing to say is this is one of these things that you just you build over a lifetime right so it's very hard to suddenly be an objective thinker some people have it naturally but you know i'm I'm someone that's cultivated i'm naturally quite impulsive actually through things like meditation journaling all these all these 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 tactics that's, that's helped me get better at it um but the principle we talk a lot about is first principle thinking so what does that mean? It means that we try to get down to why something is happening or why we might do something. A lot of entrepreneurs talk about this. I'm, I'm just repeating a, 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 a common idea. 
Um, an example of first principle thinking applies to product strategy very it's one of the four key tactics we can apply when building a product strategy is you know say when we're building a business for example we might look at a great example of this is a company called amy.so they're based in berlin actually if you've heard of them so amy.so is a great example where they looked at the markets so they found the dentist looked at the market of how people manage their time professionals professionally right how do, how do you manage your time common thing that people use is a calendar okay so there's a, there's this convention that calendars is how we manage time what amy did they said well that doesn't really make sense because people have this thing called a to-do list right that's and that's the things you know i wake up and i've got my to-do list and that's the thing that i think is important to do but then that's sort of kept over here and then your calendar is just filled with other people taking your time up like that doesn't make sense so they've come up with a very unique approach where it's no you actually you, your to-do list and calendar are essentially merged into one tool like one, mm -hmm. one place um so that's an example of first principles thinking where we go okay there's this convention of the calendar what are we actually trying to achieve with that why does it make sense does it make sense for example now how do you apply that first principles thinking firstly it's a habit right so it really you know repetition 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 you're going to get better at it over time specific tactic that i use um i'm a big into journaling i've journaled you know six out of seven days a week for about eight years if not nine years uh, uh, there are various parts to that but one thing that i do and i perhaps is the most important uh, definitely the most important from a professional perspective when I start the day, I'll define what is the one thing that I could do today that would make today successful. Um, and I can share actually a template I use. This is from the, the book, The One Thing. I completely forgot the name of the author, but just search The One Thing on Amazon. Concept's fairly simple. Every single day, define what is the one thing. If you did that one thing, today would be a success. Why is it effective? Because a to-do list is not effective. To-do list is simply listing down whatever's come your way, however important that might be. And by defining that one thing, first it helps you, you know, you're prioritizing, but I find personally it helps me apply first principles and say, okay, well, like, you know, sometimes I'll put something on my, my to-do list like last week and I'll come to it. I'm like, does that make sense anymore? Did it ever make sense? And just by pausing to ask that question, I don't just immediately jump into what's next on my list. I'm going to say, you know, what, what really makes sense? um uh to to apply yeah so, so that's that's one thing i would recommend is don't worry about getting into a big journaling habit but if you want to start with one really simple thing it can be a <laughs> post-it note i use bear you know note-taking app on my on my phone for example uh i use that that syncs with my laptop so every single day i start first thing i'll do is open my journal write out one thing and then the other the other parts of that journal you don't need to do that I have a notebook open so it's nice and visible post-it notes whatever it is doesn't really matter even if you just think of okay well, what, what do i want to do today it's a great way to do it because you know we've got limited capacity but we can't always be questioning convention we're just gonna you know we get tired in the afternoon we're gonna go into sort of robot mode a bit more so first thing in the day if you get that one big win then you know usually most stuff doesn't matter after that exactly boy i can't I can sympathize a lot with what you said because I have personally 
and I have seen others also doing this, over relying so much on our to-do list. Mm-hmm. And then what happens here, like I'm, I'm having a notebook as well and I write down all of the tasks is that morning, every morning or every second morning, I open up and look at my task list. I see 20 competing rows of actions. Not sure where to look at. This is what, you know, I, I, I encourage everyone to do a build a business just at least once purely for the the improvement well hopefully the let me take a step back why is it so valuable building a business um it's not just you know if it's successful obviously you've got the, the freedom purpose that comes with it the fact that you are naked and alone nobody's there to tell you what to do there's no accountability and there are infinite things you could do Right. From this, even, you know, I've successful business for three years at this point in time. Hey, I could do whatever the hell I want after this, this, this podcast, for example. Um, so it, it, it just, it's so effective in training your thinking and also giving that feedback loop, right? It's because, you know, you do a thing. Exactly. You see impact. Whereas if, you know, you're working in a, in a particularly, you know, I'm a bootstrap solo founder business. I prefer it that way, but, um, there's you know there's no one for me to go and complain to or say that life's unfair or someone to you know tell me what to do as a business owner it's all on me and i have to work out okay well what i think makes sense based on imperfect information test it out get some feedback and then try and continuously improve with it um you know beyond the, the 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 you know again the the lifestyle that 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 business brings and and the purpose that comes with it I would have gone through the whole experience just to improve as a, a thinker. I think it's absolutely invaluable. Mm. Especially for a product manager or head of product or a product leader. I think first principle that you mentioned, that mm-hmm. you broke it down so beautifully. And also experiencing taking risk firsthand mm-hmm. on a on a on a business that they founded. Spot it's on. like it's like playing poker. Playing poker without money is a completely different game 100%. than playing poker with money. This this is by the way, um, you know, so so the core of what, what we do at, at Prod MBA is we get we take product managers and we say, look, we're not gonna try and skill you up by watching some videos. We're gonna make you build a real product from scratch <laughs> with real users to to wow. real revenue in many cases. Why? Because you need skin in the game. Theory is very different, particularly in product. It's true of almost everything, particularly in product. Theory does not translate to reality in product. You can't just take like some principle like you can in programming, like here's how you build a function. It's going to come out a completely different way in practice. So we have to uh, get them to, to go and do this stuff in practice. And actually a big part of that, and a you know, big part of my philosophy generally when, when giving advice to people is there's the things that we well i call above the surface and below the surface skills so take product management above the surface skills would be okay well how good are you at crafting a product strategy like there is there is theory there do you understand network effects how good are you with data etc these are sort of tangible skills but actually the most valuable stuff the foundations for you as a product leader are things like okay well 
great if you can come up with a product strategy in theory. Let's see you go do that in practice. Let's see you under the pressure of needing results, of needing to come up with a product that really works. Can you detach yourself effectively? Can you actually go and apply first principle thinking in the, you know, Marcus Aurelius calls this in the arena. When we are in the arena, it's very different from when we're sitting in the stands watching. And it's very easy to sit in the stands and criticize. It's very hard to be in the arena and, and, and make uh, perfect decisions when you are there. So it's a good segue into Prod MBA, your current business. So in about, let's say, if I, hopefully I get the right timeline right, 15 years, you gradually went from being entrepreneurs and founding uh, an app to launching a service business to help product folks to learn the skill and art of product management by actually doing and launching a business. Can you just sort of like walk me through this journey? How did you end up here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, and I think it all, you know, leads to, gives you some context on like why I built a, this kind of business as well. I think it's a really important question for, for aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, so yeah, after, after Backtracker, I was doing, you know, usually there like three months, potentially six month project. I worked for a startup in Brazil for a year, um, was in Portugal, then moved to Berlin as well. And every having gone through that second year at Backtracker where we'd, you know, we'd really done agile with a lowercase a, right? We weren't trying to follow sort of, scrum frameworks too much we, we were really living the principles lean testing experimentation hypotheses driven etc so when i went into the the you know other companies afterwards i thought like well like obviously everyone else does this stuff right like it makes complete sense like why would we make i've seen the reality of when we just make decisions based on ego and we don't sort of work out you know what we're building what was the actual impact of those things we built and it quickly became apparent that like Nobody really does this stuff, or, or you know, at least not the companies that are willing to, to to hire me at that stage. So I spent probably you know four years learning a lot still because you know I'm still young. I only had obviously two years experience as a founder is a lot of experience, but it's still you know it's still let's say mid level uh, PM at that stage. Um, so I realized all well, these companies aren't doing this stuff, and I'd you know do what I could. But realize I'm not going to, you know, it's not my company. I'm not going to fight these battles. So, hey, if they want me to go do some UX work, great. If I'm coming in to do some product management work, that, that's great as well. I'm going to try and, you know, do what I can in terms of moving the needle, you know, bringing in new processes. But I realize it's not my, you know, not my, not my battle. So after, you know, it took us to about four or five years ago, um, I said, right, I want to start another business again. So whilst I was doing consulting and freelancing in Berlin at that time, um, I we started a company called Scribes. This was a guy, ex-colleague of mine, and then a, a rock star CTO that I worked with in, in uh, Zagreb, who I'd still hang out with, go and have beers with now and again. And we so we started a company called Scribe, which is a journaling application. And again, we got some good traction with that. We got uh, to early stage profitability with it. But there was a point when you know, I realized like, I don't, I don't want to go down the investment route again. I don't want to go down the investment route again. I'd done that with Backtracker and it had taken me 
so far away from why I ever started the business. Why did I start backtracking up my first business? I started because I wanted to, I wanted to travel. I wanted to have, you know, I work very hard, but I like freedom of time. Even now I like starting early, but I'll finish early, go off, you know, go to gym, play tennis, you know, have hobbies, time off during the day, etc. So I wanted it to, you know, really craft the lifestyle that I wanted to live. And with Backtracker, particularly when I was in the Sierra, you know, I found myself going to meetings all across London, stuck in London in winter, um, living back with my mum at the time as well, because obviously we, we were bootstrapping, you know, we had some investment, but, but trying to keep costs as low as possible. And I was just, you know, I'm not happy doing this, this business. So when it came to Scribe, we got to the point where there was potential there. You know, there's a huge wave in terms of mental health and, and journaling becoming sort of a, a, a convention. We talk about question convention, but actually we want to also ride some waves where conventions exist. And we just said, you know, personally, this is not what I want to do. The other founders sort of felt, you know, they weren't sure what they would do moving forward. So we just closed that business down um, about four years ago. And I went back to doing, you know, I think it was about six months to a year of, of consultancy, freelance, you know, getting money in, learning, trying to help where possible. But no, no sort of, you know, massive win, no, no taking something to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And when the pandemic started, um, mm -hmm. you know, all that freelance consultancy stuff sort of dried up. And I said, you know what, as with everything in life, this could be a massive opportunity. I always, I really believe in that stoic approach where something bad is, is, is an opportunity to learn. Right. And why was it an opportunity for me? Because I thought about doing something in this space, right, in the product space, mm -hmm. based on all of that, those years working with companies, you know, I've been honing frameworks, my communication skills, my product knowledge as well. I, I got, I got better, more effective, particularly sort of practical. How do we actually do things in practice in the, in the mess of the real world? And I'd had this idea, this, this sort of hypothesis that, okay, there are all these product people. Currently, they're learning by just reading books or doing online courses. But I know from my experience as a founder, the only way to learn this stuff is like throw you in at the deep end, work on a real thing, and go through the mess of building product in practice. Great example of this is Lean Startup, right? that experiment-driven approach, really easy in theory super hard in practice not just practically but also okay well how do you explain to your boss that you might fail nine times and only the tenth time it might succeed i mean these kind of things and how do you manage that psychologically constantly being, being confronted by failure so i'd yeah. had this moment where i'd questioned this this you know gone to first principles thinking say the whole product training space doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense and then doing really the process mm -hmm. that we teach and you know, going out actually speaking to product people and saying like, what's, what's going on? How are you skinning up? What are your, your, your goals, your desires, et cetera. And it was this repeated, uh, two messages. The first one that, that books and courses were too theoretical. And secondly, that people weren't really getting the guidance and mentorship that they needed to improve. Mm -hmm. So when the pandemic came around, I experimented with a few new business ideas, but I said, I asked myself, um, you know, a key question, which was, what kind of business do I want to create, firstly? And that was one where I wasn't going to have loads of employees, wasn't going to have any founders, wasn't going to have any investment. Mm -hmm. like that's so, it. And that, 
And that was, you know, me personally, I never say that's the right thing to do. For many people, some industries, it just doesn't work as well. Some some markets and products. But for me personally, that was, I want to try that. I want to try, if I don't try that, you know, that's really going to, something I'm going to regret looking back on. And then the second one was, okay, well, actually, is there an actual opportunity? Because it's great to go, you know, I've got my principles yeah. and I want to build this type of business. But ultimately, you know, you need demand. You need to be able to make money to sustain yourself. So went and then did all the product discovery work to see, well, what is going on in this space, generate some different ideas, and then honed in on this concept of doing a boot camp where I was bringing these, you know, two sides, this sort of the product management meets entrepreneurship, the the soft skills you get from okay. entrepreneurship with the, the hard skills of, okay, well, how do you go apply this as a product person? Um, that was about, what, what, three years ago now. And um, did a first cohort, treated it very much as I do any digital product process. Let's come out with an MVP. Let's test out whether this is, in fact, something people get value from. Are there any feasibility issues that I needed to face? Usability issues, even with like a you know video-based uh, and Zoom-based course. Like there, there are there are things that are not obvious to the, to the user that are uh, you know you have to try and iron out. But it was really about, is the core value there? Uh, is this something people are really going to want? So I did a first cohort. My um, my success metrics were retention. The first thing, are we actually going to keep people? Uh, I think we got about 60 to 70% through on the first cohort, which was good because it was pretty messy. <laughs> and the second one was actually like, did we get anyone that generated revenue? And of the, I think it's about 16 that made it through, we got four five in the end that did actually generate revenue which was you know a surprise i didn't know whether that was something that, that, that i could make happen so i said okay there's something here and then really over the last two years just iterated again treating it like a product iterate every single cohort iterate in terms of our acquisition how we build awareness the core experience and um you know ultimately trying to deliver more of the value we promise which is you know moving you towards product leadership uh, giving you more confidence and more impact ultimately as well. And that really, you know, takes takes us to where we are now, which is a nice position where the business is very stable, good income coming in. Um, uh, it's not overwhelming in terms of time for me. You know, I'm, I'm able to take time off. I went skiing last week, I was able to, you know, do that and not come back to a million emails. So it's a very nice level at the moment. And, um, you know, exploring things like came out with a new book, obviously, launching some other boot camps in the background, but just... Slowly building trust, you know, not taking on too many students, making sure the core experience is really high quality. And um, yeah, that, that's that's where we are today. That's fantastic. That's just such a, such a really, I really, I'm really, I really appreciate that you took your time and really broke down your journey because I think it's, I picked up a few solid things from it. And I hope if someone listen, listen to this podcast with like sharp ears, it would pick up something here as well. Something that um, at attracted my attention, well, two, two things is that I had another conversation with another entrepreneur too who has mm -hmm. a service business similar to yours in B2B space, different a bit, content marketing. He said that, Berard, I'm trying to design my business in a way that fits my lifestyle. And I see certain common threads here too, because you clearly went into your current business with a clear vision that I wanted to be 
I want to be running my business in certain ways and I do not wish to compromise at all on what I like and how I like it and how I like to run it. Yeah, it's better, you know, I think it's worth throwing some data out there to support, you know, why I think more people should consider this. It's estimated that, you know, 90% of startups fail. Um, it's very hard to find specific data on product failure rate. But from looking at various studies, you know, I've done, done my research in this area over the last two, three years. It, you know, we can look at, for example, if we take studies from LinkedIn and Pinterest, they estimate the failure rate of new products or new features at 70 to 90%. So these are, these are very good companies, right? That they have established markets. They have a deep understanding of their customers, we, we, we think. Um, even then, with all of that data and all these very, very clever product people there, it's an extremely high failure rate. So when we take that stat and we also look at the failure rate of investment-driven businesses, which is around the same. If you're looking to companies that actually end up IPOing, I can't remember the exact stat. I don't want to put it out there, but extremely low, I think, from memory, around 5%. But let's one double check. Yeah, that. That's mind blowing. It's one, 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 in, one in every 250 yeah. get to a level that they can. Get, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, even less. Even less. So yeah. um, the, the problem is, is that aspiring founders assume that the only path is so sorry let me backtrack again so firstly it's extremely unlikely that you're going to build an investment driven startup and see success in a way how do we define success you know i I see that as the business is stable long term continues to exist and or you have you know you come out uh with enough financial resources to do what the hell you want after it These are usually the two outcomes people are looking for. Um, First thing is, even companies that IPO, and this is something I noticed as well in Berlin, I I won't name the company, but I worked at a company where there were two of the founders had sold their business, Uh, a startup. Exited, but I don't know how many, good amount of millions, you know, 10 plus million each, easily enough to sit on a beach and do whatever they want. I noticed they almost immediately started another business because they'd lost their baby. You can have all the money in the world, but they didn't have purpose. So they just went straight on to the next thing. And I don't think they I, they knew what they wanted in life. I don't think they knew. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm transposing onto someone else's system. It wasn't clear to me that they knew, like, what are things that they, they value personally? You know, is it, it can be simple things like hobbies, but also, you know, do you prioritize travel? Do you prioritize friends, relationships, these kind of things? So I said, you know, God, that's another sign that this whole investment-driven approach is not really what I want to do. Um, so, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's not, the, the, the data just doesn't seem to point to it being a great idea. Again, it depends on what you're interested in. The, the, the second thing that I noticed is that investment becomes a crutch, becomes a, a barrier to action. I've speak to many people that say aspiring entrepreneurs that say, Oh, I just need to raise investment so I can start my idea. And that uh-huh. is, it's a bullshit answer because in any situation, you should not be building complex te- technologies straight from the start. You should be at a minimum validating firstly, is there demand, right? Does my audience seem to value? 
what I'm proposing to offer. That can be as simple. We talk about this as an MVO, a minimal viable offer. Am I offering something of value? It can be a message on a landing page with an email sign-up form for a beta program. You know, that is that is step one, whatever you're doing. If you're selling the next Tesla or if you're building, you know, a niche B2B business. Um, step two is well, the, the other sort of you know, key step to take is, is remembering that um, I see this. It's why we don't use, we ban the word MVP in Prod MBA or like the Prod MBA community because it's so misused. The concept's great, the theory's yeah. great. Why is it so misused? Because there's this thing called this sort of illusion of alignment. So, well versed product people, very experienced product people, they get back to the core meaning right, of MVP, which is essentially some way of de delivering a learning. It's an experiment of some kind. Now, what most people, when they think of MVP, is they think firstly that it's it's um, well, ultimately that it's it's a sort of a quick, messy version of the eventual product. Usually, that means it's going to be digital. Usually, it means they custom code it in some way. Thirdly, it's usually overly complex because they're already trying to do a you know, what's the base level of all these features we eventually want to do. You know, in many cases, we don't need to do that. We could do a service. We could do no code. We could do design prototype. We could do smokescreen, right, where we manually, you know, think of, I want to build a recruitment tool. Hey, why don't we do that manually? Get on the phone or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. So, you know, I see investment being an excuse for people. So, well, you know, what? I just need to raise investment and then I can do all this stuff. It's just not true. You can get, you should get started by yourself um, on a minimum or at least take action with free tools or, you know, getting support from one of your mates that does UX or product or whatever it might be. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it's, it's you know, dangerous model. And again, there, there's times that it might make sense. You know, I've had, I've had a conversation, for example, with a VC in the ed tech space, just about saying, well, what might that look like if we were to really scale Prod MBA? And, um, you know, for me personally, it's just not what aligns with my interests. If, if it, you know, if, if it does, but I think it, point being is that this is something you need to think about yourself. And again, question first principles, rather than just, just accepting this convention that everything needs to be the next, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera. Um, because it's just not true. And, you know, you need to, again, just ask, what, what do you want? What kind of life do you want to live? Because whatever that business is going to be, it's probably going to be for the next five, 10 years. 100%. For me, as a as an entrepreneur, cash flow is more important than investment. Yeah, yeah. This funny as, idea that yeah. companies should there's make a money lot of five back. million. <laughs> there's a lot of five million invest startups who raised one million, two million, three million, five million, and you ask them how much you're making on a monthly basis. Zero. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, that, that, that idea of profitability is coming back. And I think this is where I did a post yesterday actually talking about the, you know, the, the beauty of a recession is that it does, it, it, it becomes actually an even playing field again, where the bootstrap businesses come through, these sort of longer term thinking businesses start to really come through. You know, it's this sort of tortoise versus the hare race. And we start slowly catching up. So, so it's, uh, you know, interesting to see. And I laugh as well because you know, I, my probably my exact words back in Backtracker would have been, we don't need to worry about revenue. Like we'll work it out at some point when we've got loads of users. And we were encouraged in that thinking by investors, by advisors, etc. Um, because 
you know, again, it was all about growth, 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 and not about actually building a, a, a stable foundation. I think final thought on yeah. that. It's a philosophical and moral point that I also think is is important to consider. If your company closes, so the VC-driven model is you're going to grow extremely quickly. You're either going to hit these investment targets or just close down because it's just not worth you know worth the investor's time. I think that is a moral morally wrong thing to do. Uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it's negligence because some products people really depend on. You know, if I think my note-taking app, Bet, it's got my journal from 10 years. It's got every single note I've ever taken, organized, tagged. If they go, you know what, we're just going to try and scale quickly and then close down, that really materially, uh, uh, more than materially affects, you know, my life, just as one example. So I think it's wrong to you know, scale quickly and then really risk the core of the business. You're, you're not actually putting your users first. You're ultimately putting investment investors first. So I think there's a moral responsibility to build a, um, a you know, stable business that's there for the long term. Hey, if it fails, you know, a lot of stuff's out of our control, right? A lot of stuff's out of our control. We should at least make an effort to, to you know, deeply consider the implications for, our key stakeholders, which are ultimately, uh, you know, obviously our employees, but also our, our users. Harry, um, I cannot thank you enough, first of all, for breaking down and articulating on certain key aspects of entrepreneurship that are actually heels of many entrepreneurs. So I would like to get into a bit product strategy. Just a bit of a context. Part of Bonanza Design, our studio clients are enterprise enterprises. And last year alone, I think I've talked to over 50 different innovation, digital innovation officer, CPO, head of product, marketer in different enterprises. And I see them utterly confused and stuck in months of research to shape their product strategy. So why do you think product strategy is simple? And why do you think is the cause or are the causes of certain companies not getting it right or at least not getting it right bit in a reasonable time frame yeah great question uh and it t- ties in obviously what you know what why why that title was was chosen let's start with a a, a point that i well, i hope most people would agree with that simple things are easier to scale are easier to build upon complex things are not yeah complex things invite confusion invite competing goals etc right so complex things don't really scale simple things do product strategy in its whole form is complex for example the product strategy of a company like google there are multiple products contributing to each other that drive towards some sort of business goals Okay, so simple example, we've got your advertising tool on YouTube. You've then got YouTube as a 
user into you know uh, user facing content uh, consumption you've got content creation how does that interplay with with the data you know the, the the data that they then take from youtube and then leverage into other products as well there's all this very interesting interplay going on that's an example where product strategy is complex so what do we mean in that case when we're talking about product strategy we're talking about okay well what's the combination of value proposition potential features um, business goals, business outcomes we're driving towards, how does that all fit together? In most companies, we do not need that level of complexity, right? Or, or mm. we do not need that level of complexity. A great example of where product strategy is simple, I'm going to give you two examples. First is a company called Superhuman. Second company, I think we've done a good job on this, actually. And this is, you know, why, why, why I thought I was a good person to write the book. So Superhuman, if you haven't heard of it, is an email application. Their stated offer is to provide the fastest email experience ever, right? the fastest email experience ever. This is a company. If you said to, to you know, say, say to a product person, I'll say to Barrett, if you've not heard of it, you know, I'm going to ask you to build a product to outcompete Gmail you would go like, where the hell do I even start with that? <laughs> where do you know it? Maybe not you because you're, a, you know, obviously lots of experience in UX. Most people would go at least have a moment of panic. I I'm sure I would. Yeah. Um, now, Superhuman have managed to outcompete Gmail for their specific audience. They managed to charge $30 a month. It's five or six times more than Gmail. Last time I checked, they have uh, yeah. around 750,000 people on the waiting list just to you know, saying, hey, Superhuman, take my money. I want to use your product. How are they able to do that? Because they are laser focused in their product strategy. They're not adding loads of layers of complexity. Mm. The product itself is complex in terms of the technology underpinning it. Right? Making this very fast experience, that's not easy to do, right? We need high level developers, you need high, you know, very, very effective agile processes and principles in place but the product strategy is not complex the product strategy is simple it is focused on speed right we make the fastest email experience ever and every decision we make whether it's new products or new features and by the way they don't build lots of new products because they want to stay focused is on speed right can we make email faster in some way and they've been hugely successful because of that, just by really stripping it back to what is the one thing we do really well. And that is the definition of product strategy that I think is most useful uh, uh, for 90 plus percent of cases of, of products. Uh, and it's one from Melissa Perry where she talks about um, she is the author of Got a Complete Mind Blank, uh, Escaping the Build Trap. You know, she talks about product strategy being um, really at its core about clarity around what we focus on and what we don't focus on so in super, superhuman case principle. that is first principles thank you yeah speed that's what they focus on we're going to be the fastest email experience ever we're not going to have like you know the most hey you can customize your ui and make it or you know add little stars on the edge or whatever you want it's about speed okay take that logic let's apply it to product yeah particularly because, you know, we're a bootstrap company. We can't compete with the likes of Product School that have, you know, raised $30 million in funding last year. And you know what? We don't want to because we just do one thing really well. 
And that's about hands-on actionable learning, right? We don't want to be all these like overly mm. theoretical books and video courses. We're going to be the most hands-on, most actionable product experience, right? Way to help you improve your, your product career. We just focus on those two things. If something doesn't help us do that, we're not going to do it. Take the book, for example, right? The book is, is a book, so it's, it's, it's inherently theoretical. But if you look into it, you know, it's it constantly linking back to Miro boards that you can put into practice with your team. There are clear step-by-steps for any type of theory that we're mentioning. So it's designed to be this actionable hands-on guide. If it wasn't, you know, if it's one of these really big, chunky theoretical books, wouldn't have written it. It's just, it's not, it doesn't tie in with what we do as a company. So that's why product strategy is simple because we can make it really complicated and companies are really, really good at it. But first, it doesn't need to be. And secondly, it makes it far harder to scale when we, when we add complexity, when we try and add you know, different steps, different sequences involved with our product strategy. Product strategy, I think, what I'm getting from your, your elaboration is that if you, if you have a clear idea of what your product strategy is, your product strategy statement come out really clear, simple as well, like actionable learning. That's what product MBA is all about or the fastest email client out there, superhumans, right? When a a product team has a clarity over what they want to achieve, that manifests itself in how they're stating that goal and that manifests itself in the overall UX of their application, right? Yeah. when and when I hear actionable learning as a statement, it rings so beautifully, right? So my curiosity, and I would like to delve a bit deeper in that. What should I? What should we take? What should product folks take to get that level of simplicity and clarity about their strategy? Awesome. Yeah, I'll talk about this frame at the MVO that we use to really uh, uh, craft and communicate a product strategy. But I think just a, just a really important point on this, we shouldn't conflate product strategy with a value proposition. Okay, so value proposition, you know, what, what, are, we, what mm. are we proposing to offer? The product strategy is, let's take the fastest email experience ever. It is the core representative of the product strategy because it frames the decisions that we're going to make internally. We don't need to list out like all the key features that are going to be part of our product strategy initially. You know, we have a roadmap for that. Sure. It's really important. Um, But it should be obvious if you work in superhuman or, you know, product MBA, it's obvious what we should think about building because we come back to the product strategy statement. You know, we understand, okay, well, are these features going to help us deliver more speed for our email application? Um, we know that speed is ultimately going to drive towards our business goal, right, which is going to be some sort of you know, increasing revenue in some way, for example. So that's the crux of it. Again, there are aspects. Roman um, Pickler talks about 
uh, delves into the, the topics like, okay, we need to understand key features. We need to understand what the business goals and outcomes are. Sure, these are important, but they're not core to the product strategy. We could just have our product strategy statement and everything else will work itself out. Right? Not always, but you know, generally stuff will work itself out. Okay, are these things going to help us deliver more speed with our email experience? If so, great. If not, whatever, we're not going to worry about it. So coming back to your question, Barrett, about, okay, well, how do we actually uh, craft and communicate product strategy? We use this framework of an MVO not just to craft, communicate, but also to validate a product strategy. Mm-hmm. We should be validating our product strategy, whether we are a startup on day one, whether we are an enterprise, you know, huge business with millions of users, for example. So what is the MVO? The minimal viable offer is really a, a statement of what we offer going beyond the value proposition about how we specifically deliver value. So there are three key parts to that statement. The first is, who are we there to serve? Who is our audience? In early stage companies, that's usually very specific. So, you know, when we started out, that's product managers with two to three years experience going, you know, thinking about going into their second role, for example, based in Berlin at that time. So really, really nice and specific. As we, uh, you know, as the product grows, we're going to broaden that audience. So we might just target product managers more broadly, for example. So first is being really specific mm-hmm. about who are we trying to target. Second component mm-hmm. is outlining the specific desired outcome that we want to deliver for that audience. Um, that sounds pretty obvious. But, it, but it's usually not. Usually we're not digging under the surface. So say with, um, you know, let's say in our case, we might think, well, people want to learn product strategy or product um, discovery, for example. Well, no, they don't want to do that. They want to. That's just a vehicle to help them get to their desired outcome, which is a combination of career progress and helping their product have more impact ultimately. Okay. So, so helping them have more, more impact with their product work. So when we talk about desired outcome, we talk a lot about, you know, digging under the surface, understanding, okay, well, you know, what's the, what's the core motivation there that drives action. Mm -hmm. So we take our, these two components, right? Who are we trying to help? Secondly, what's the desired outcome that they want to have? And then thirdly, how do we, how do we deliver that in a unique way? Mm-hmm. For example, how do we deliver that in a unique way? And that's the point where we look at the the different tactics of like, okay, well, how do we how do we come up with something unique that makes sense from a strategic perspective? So I'll just wrap up talking about the the, the framework, and then we can talk about the four ways to think about product strategy itself, and, and, and particularly coming up with a differentiated offer. So we simply package that into a statement. We are, you know, going through the book, all the visuals and step-by-steps for, for all of this process. We essentially say, use this rough template. We help our audience, for example, product managers, achieve their desired outcome. For example, fast track to product leaders by dot, 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 unique way that we do that. So ours at Product MBA is, for example, we fast track product managers to head of product with the most hands on bootcamp ever, as an example. So it's very specific, concrete, 
not just clarification of the product vision, which is the we help our audience achieve this big outcome, and that's what sort of motivates us internally, and that's our North Star, but the, the how we do it, right? What's that thing that we focus on? For superhuman, it might be something like, you know, we help busy tech executives save two hours per day with the fastest SEMA experience ever. Another example. Mm. So finally, let's talk about like, okay, what are those unique components of, of product strategy? What are four things that you can take away and think about? Again, these are noted down in the book. Firstly, it's about questioning convention. We talked about first principles a lot today. You can see it's a theme that has stuck with me since uh, Backtracker days. Uh, how can we question convention? Can we look at the problem and say, well, firstly, is this the, is this the real problem we're trying to solve? So calendar, it's like, oh, how can we build a better calendar? Well, that's not the problem. The problem is how do we manage our time more effectively? How do we How do we do more with our time? So questioning convention, we might look at existing solutions like calendars and say, like, does that make sense? Or should we do things in a different way? <laughs> Second is new technology. Now, that doesn't just mean building new technology, like coming up with an amazing, you know, lithium batteries that we're going to build and we're going to put them in a car like Tesla. It could be leveraging new technologies that are coming out, right? Things like chat GPT, how, how can we use that? To use a boring example now, in a new product. Um, great example of this is Loom.com. So Loom helps you share yeah. uh, videos. They didn't build all this amazing video technology. Like, sure, they've improved it, but but these these are existing improvements in terms of how we how we pass data, how we um, store videos, etc. So they're riding off a wave whilst also increasing the size of the wave. Um, third thing we can do is just focus and say, okay, what's one thing that we could do a lot better? Might not be completely revolutionising, you know, really questioning convention. What should be one thing that we do better? So Zappos was a really good example of this, a bit, a bit of an outdated one now, uh, sort of uh, 2010s. So Zappos, just they sold shoes, marketplace for shoes. You know, quite a few of those were popping up at the time. They just focused on customer support. They were going to have the best customer support ever. Why did that make sense? Because, you know, shoes don't always fit. So they're going to get lots of returned shoes. They're something people buy regularly, so they focus on retention. They said, we're just going to make amazing customer support. Every single employee the multi-week, I think it was a three to four week training program when they joined on customer mm -hmm. support, whatever your role. And they were hugely successful and sold out to Amazon for, I think it was around 10, 10 billion or so. So that's, that's the third thing. And then fourth, a little bit more complex is um, how might we create long-term dominance? And that really comes down to network effects in most cases. Think of the most successful products we see, um, Miro, social media tools for example clubhouse did this for a very short while but just a more recent example network effects essentially is how do we create more value for the network the more people use it simple example uh -huh. facebook was only valuable because when your mates are on facebook there's more relevant content for you to consume if you go on medium medium's going to be rubbish unless there are other people posting the articles if I'm posting, uh, I'm, I'm bringing people in. So there's a virality there. And also as more people come on, they're going to create more content. That's more value for me as a consumer of content as well. So sort of, you know, network effects, we can roughly equate to virality, but it's really about actually the product increases in value, the more people are using it. So 
we can come back to these four things about, you know, okay, coming back to product strategy, we need to be clear about who we're there to help, what outcome we're really driving towards, what's that core motivation, and then finally, well, how can we how can we deliver that in a unique way? What's that that thing we're going to focus on? Do we do that by questioning invention? Can we do that by and or leveraging technology, new technology? Thirdly, is there just one thing we could just really double down on that no one else is doubling down on? And finally, can we apply network effects to, to really help this this product grow in the long term? And again, you know, we don't we don't need to talk about the features. We don't need to talk about the business model at this stage. Sure, those things might come up, but the crux of it, the thing that's really important is um is is just being clear about what we focus on and what we do not focus on and that's that's really what what product strategy is about everything else is secondary everything is everything else is secondary and i can understand the importance of it and the importance of how you broke it down and how valuable it is for scaling a business and so it can stay competitive for the long term because as you said that everyone like designing and implementing futures is not rocket science anymore it's 2023 well you should have you know also it's like you should have smart enough people to just work out those features right you know you as a product person it's the strategic piece is the most important you know without that you're going to fail you're really going to fail. You're going to lose. You know, even even companies that 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 may start off with good traction, like they become fatty. They lose focus without that very crystal clear product strategy. And it's also why you know, part one of the book is about crafting. Well, part one of the book is about you know actually really delving into product strategy and why it's so misunderstood. Then the three action steps are really how do we craft product strategy. Second, how do we validate it? We we didn't talk about that, but it's a whole other topic. Third is communicating it. Yeah, great if you've got the, the best product strategy ever, but if your stakeholders and team are not buying into it and staying focused on it, you know, over one year, two years, three years, whatever it might be, then uh, you're not going to ultimately have impact. That's fantastic. I would love to invite you for a part two to go through. So we talked a bit about crafting, but how to validate that. That's That's my ears. I'm like... We got to get to the bottom of validation of it and also communicating it. And it's so true that often if what I, based on my experience, I have to keep talking about it, talking about Like Steve Jobs kept talking about the Apple same, vision. Same message, exactly. Talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same message over and over again with slight differences. Like, why this guy is so annoying? Now I realize, no, actually, he was very smart. Yeah, I'll try and very quickly whilst we're on. Uh, if not, I, we can add it to the show notes. There's a great quote from a, I don't want to say the wrong person for this. There's a product leader who talked about, you know, repeating, repeating, repeating until you, you know, you are essentially you're bored yourself, right? but make sure you keep repeating the same message. And again, that's, that's product strategy. It's, you know, the more complexity we add, the less likely people are to actually follow the thing. So yes, you know, sometimes we need to go and have that very complex multi-product approach like a Google. Usually it's, that's actually a symptom of a lack of clarity around product strategy. And that's, you know, another argument to, to simplify and really strip back your product strategy. Thank you a lot. I think this was a beautiful ending to this part one. For all the 
folks who are listening to this, we put the link of the book so you can purchase it. I really think you need to have it in your shelf. Thanks, thanks a lot, Henry, for being so generous with your knowledge and experiences. And I wish you a fantastic year ahead. It's a new year, and we we'll see each other soon. Thanks so much, Brent.